we do need to make room for women to be lifted up in organizations and feel courageous enough to seek out leadership positions. And when you're intentional about making sure that women and people of color are are represented, the quality actually improves. I think everything we do is better when there are diverse opinions. Gender equity in healthcare is a complex issue that requires a multi-layered approach. Promoting equity in medicine involves collaboration with others to improve the environment and profession for all. Originally aired on a Permanente Medicine podcast, this episode explores the challenges women face along the road to becoming leaders in medicine. I'm Todd Unger, AMA's Chief Experience Officer, and you're listening to Moving Medicine, a podcast from the American Medical Association. Today, I'm excited to have two inspiring physician leaders from the American Medical Association and the Colorado Permanente Medical Group. Together, we'll delve into the topic of women leaders in medicine while discussing their unique paths to becoming prominent voices in healthcare. Calling into the show are Dr. Susan Bailey, an allergist and immunologist in Texas and president of the American Medical Association, and Dr. Margaret Ferguson, a pediatric hospitalist and president and executive medical director of the Colorado Permanente Medical Group which provides care to Kaiser Permanente members in the Colorado region. Welcome, Dr. Bailey and Dr. Ferguson. I can't tell you how excited I am to have you both on the podcast today. Thanks for having us. Thank you, Chris. All right. Well, let's go ahead and get started. And I'd like to start with a question for Dr. Bailey. In June 2020, you were sworn in virtually as the 175th president of the AMA. You're the third consecutive woman to take this office. Can you talk a little bit about your path to leadership and what it means to lead the American Medical Association during such a pivotal time in medicine? Oh, thanks, Chris. Can I have the whole hour to talk about that? (laughs) (laughs) Take as much time as you need. Oh, gosh. I have been involved in organized medicine since I was in medical school. I have passionately believed from day one that being a successful physician and taking the best care of my patients meant more than just what happened in the exam room. Being exposed to the Texas Medical Association and the American Medical Association early uh, helped me understand the important role of health policy uh, in medical care. And I have been in private practice, the same allergy practice in Fort Worth, Texas, for uh, over 30 years and have gradually worked my way up through the Texas Medical Association and now the American Medical Association. And I think just being president during a pandemic was certainly not what I had planned. And I was installed in June and we figured out in really in March, that we were going to have to do things, you know, very differently. Typically, the inauguration of the president is a very fancy black tie gala type event. But I was inaugurated in a studio uh, in front of a camera 
my speech was pre-recorded, and so I watched myself get installed over my laptop at my kitchen table. So, you know, if there's any group that understands how carefully thought-out plans can be completely derailed by a health emergency, it's, it's physicians. But uh, it's an incredible honor to be president of the AMA, and I really feel like I'm making a difference. We are so appreciative of the role that you're playing in American medicine and and I think we're all adopting to uh, quite different environments. So I can only imagine what it was like to be to be instilled in in, in this important role uh, virtually, and <laughs> and to be watching it from your from your own uh, kitchen table. Dr. Ferguson, let's turn to you. During your 16 years with the Colorado Permanente Medical Group, you have impacted so many lives and built an incredible legacy. Your steady and courageous leadership as executive medical director has helped steer your region through some critical times. Can you tell us a little bit about your own journey and what leadership skills you've learned to be the most critical to your success? Chris, thank you so much. I really appreciate being here today with you. It's an honor to be on with Dr. Bailey. Um, What an incredible path she has taken. My path to being in the role that I'm in now is unusual, uh, fairly circuitous. I was never related to any doctors, um, didn't really even know any when I was growing up, went to sign up for um, an activity in junior high school, and the only thing that was left was being a candy striper at a hospital. So I thought, well, I'll give that a try. And, And once I was there and learned what it's like to care for people, Um, I was delighted. So I went off to college and got a Bachelor of Science in Nursing, and I practiced both bedside and flight nursing for eight years before I even went to medical school. Grew up in a pediatric intensive care unit as an RN and therefore went ahead and uh, became a physician and spent about 24 years at a tertiary care pediatric hospital until a role came open at Kaiser Permanente Colorado. And that was about 16 years ago, and I never looked back. It's been an absolute delight to get to provide value-based care. I practiced you know, medicine full-time, took some administrative roles, and when the role for the Permanente president came open, um, a woman had never been chosen. And I thought, well, it would be a good idea if they had an opportunity to consider a style different than the usual kind of person who's selected. And I was selected. And that was about five and a half years ago. And it's um, interesting across the spectrum of my career. It's, it's really always the same three characteristics that carry me through. The first is really a vulnerability, which I think is disarming to people and can really be a superpower as a leader. Uh, the second leadership quality is really just curiosity and to continue to um, question both yourself and others as to how we can all get better. Um, And then the third is real intentional collaboration. And sometimes it takes a lot of work to work with people who you don't particularly agree with. Um, But those are the three things that have carried me through and it took all of those years to learn them. Wow. Great three core tenants. And I think for any leader uh, in medicine or across a multitude of industries, all really important. And I'm impressed by the circuitous path that you've come along, Dr. Ferguson, to the role that you're in. Let's move to a question for both of you. 
The road to leadership is often paved with challenges. What were some of the difficulties or maybe even discrimination you faced as a woman leader and how did you overcome those obstacles? I'd like to start with you, Dr. Bailey. I've always been my own boss and uh, have never worked formally in a large organization that most our practice has had for physicians in it. So we're a, a small, tightly knit group. So I've never felt any discrimination there. And many times, I just because of the era that I came up in, I was the first woman this or the first woman that. Margaret, I'm sure you can identify with that. So, you know, I learned really early to make that a plus and not a minus. So if I faced discrimination, I was too naive to recognize it. I think the biggest challenge I had um, was actually being the mom of two young children. And actually, I was a single mom in private practice raising two boys for you know a great chunk of that time. And, and that was the most challenging part. And I remember a young man who actually started off as a patient and then worked for me for a while while he was in uh, still in high school. And I had him help me out during the summer with the boys. And so I met him at, you know, the swimming pool one morning at 830 with the boys. And he said, oh, Dr. Well, it wasn't Dr. Bailey then, but he said, you know, um, now you're off to a really exciting day. And and I looked at him and said, the hardest part of my day is over. (laughs) (laughs) Just getting organized and getting the boys here and then getting to the office on time. That's the biggest challenge I'm going to face all day. And he had the funniest look on his face. He had no concept, of course of, you know, what it's like to be, you know, a working mom and, and a physician mom. You know, now he's a pediatric oncologist and has a family of his own. So I, I'm sure he understands that now. But really trying to balance being a mom, the needs of my children, going to meetings, you know, and, and it was all stuff I wanted to do. Nobody made me do any of it. But, oh, boy, was it challenging at times. And I have to confess that I didn't always keep all the balls in the air when I was juggling all those things. Well, that's a great a great story and, and a really important message because you look at your career pathway and, and you know, to be the president of the American Medical Association and, and to reflect upon your life and one of your greatest challenges is being a working mom. Dr. Ferguson, how about you? Well, I'm glad that Dr. Bailey went first because you, Susan, given me permission to be more honest about what I was going to say. I was going to be real dramatic about this, but when it comes right down to it, my biggest challenge was taking three weeks of maternity leave uh, when I was a critical care fellow, and I will never forget how difficult something like that was. And you are exactly right. The hardest part of the day is making sure that everyone is safe and fed and dressed and schooled and all of those things. And now um, our children are happy and I'm so grateful that I had help with my husband uh, to do that. But I will say that some of the difficulties were even getting into medical school. I was 29 by the time I got in. I had to apply a couple of times. I did feel discrimination about being an RN. And one of the interviewers who was pretty old school gave me a hard time about it. 
but I did get in and it ended up, you know, the first two years was a little more difficult, but the second two were a delight and easy. And then I went several decades without feeling any discrimination or any great difficulties really until the last couple of years when the challenges of leading a complex health system like Kaiser Permanente Colorado hit you know, its peak here a couple of years ago. And I, I really felt like people were not seeing steadiness, which is my style of leadership, steadiness and amiability and curiosity. Many didn't see that as a strength. And it's one of those things where you just, they have to stick with you and wait it out. And eventually folks understand that you have um, a method to the fact that you're not yelling back at everyone or raising your voice or pounding the table for things. You're trying to lead with data and rationality and kindness in some ways. And that was difficult. And when someone asked if I would ever had felt gender bias, it could be that that was the first time I ever felt that. Now we've gotten better. And I think the world is seeing that the way women lead, especially when times are difficult, is very valuable. And I'm sure that you felt that also, Dr. Bailey. So now I'm grateful that I stuck with it instead of trying to change, you know, how I led just to accommodate what the stereotype of a leader should be. Thank you, Dr. Ferguson. And I can attest to the fact that your style is phenomenal and actually yields uh, incredible results. Medicine doesn't stand still and neither do we. AMA members don't just keep up with medicine, they shape its future. Help move medicine, join the movement. Visit ama-assn.org slash movingmedicine. All right, I'm going to stay with this theme a bit. And Dr. Bailey, Data gathered in 2019 from the Kaiser Family Foundation shows that male doctors still outnumber female doctors 64% to 36% overall, but enrollment trends in medical school have been shifting. For example, the Association of American Medical Colleges shows that from 2009 through 2019, the last decade that was reported, the number of men in medical school increased by more than 5,000, while the number of women in medical school increased by nearly 9,000. What do you think this trend means for equity in the field of medicine and perhaps for medicine as a whole? It's really been interesting to watch. The percentage of women versus men in medical school has been pretty close to equal for a number of years now, but the last couple of years have definitely shown that more women than men are being accepted to medical school. And there have been some similar trends in other professions. And so, you know, my question is, will we let, because admissions, you know, processes are very highly regulated and controlled, you know, will we let the number of women medical students uh, continue to go up? Uh, and the percentages, um, or will we strive to, to keep it equal? I hope we'll always strive to get the best candidates in medical school, regardless of their gender. But I, I, it's really going to be interesting to see how that plays out. That being said, there is still a pay equity 
issue between women and men. And uh, women physicians still earn, you know, 20 to 30% less than their male colleagues overall. And so that is an issue that I think is very concerning. You know, we have to show our women physicians that they are valued, you know, equal to the men, you know, especially with more data coming along showing that many patients prefer seeing a woman physician. Women physician uh, in many ways can be more productive, have higher patient satisfaction scores. So I think it's important for the field of medicine that we make sure that we've got plenty of women and that we take very good care of them. Yeah, thank you, Dr. Bailey. And pay equity is an issue across multiple industries, but from my perspective is kind of a basic right. Do you have recommendations for whether it's a small practice with three or four doctors or the largest medical practices of steps that they may take to ensure that we are moving rapidly to equity and pay uh, and no gender differences? Well, you know, I think the first thing that we have to do is teach women that it's okay to ask for what they're worth and that it's okay to ask from the very beginning to make sure that they're making what the men are making in equal positions. I think these things have to be very intentional. They're not going to happen on their own. We have to set very specific goals about expectations for ourselves. That's great advice. Dr. Ferguson, you wrote a wonderful commentary for Modern Healthcare a while back about the importance of mentorship, training, and empowerment in developing physician leaders. What advice do you have for your fellow physicians about leading effectively in today's rapidly changing medical landscape? Well, it's interesting to follow on with the question about women in medicine, because really it's about women in leadership as well. And I think it's really about listening, and you have to be an active listener as a leader. It's about really respecting the front line and the people who are doing the work. It's about admitting if you don't know something certainly using data, remaining curious, but if you don't know, there's not a thing wrong with the vulnerability of admitting that you don't and uh, finding out the right answer. And then for especially women and people who are more reluctant leaders, like I probably was along the way, you cannot be afraid to fail and you have to just remain authentic. And I am always way more successful when I simply act like myself in even difficult negotiations and so forth. I did want to say one more thing about taking care of women. I I think that what Dr. Bailey said is very, very poignant. And we do need to make room for women to be lifted up in organizations and feel courageous enough to uh, seek out leadership positions. And then we need to make it okay if you have to get home at certain times or if you need to maybe work at home somewhat so that you can have a balance in your life. Again, I think that also makes for an effective leader and an effective leadership team. That's great advice. This is a transformational time for our country as a new presidential administration enters the White House 
including our first female vice president and a woman of color. This hopefully will inspire breaking the glass ceiling in other industries. Could you talk about programs or tactics that you've implemented to encourage diversity within the organizations that you each lead? And I'll start with you, Dr. Ferguson, and and then we'll head to Dr. Bailey. Uh, Chris, thank you. I'm sure, as with Susan, this is very, very important to me, and equity, inclusion, and diversity, and the movement that we are in is um, something that has been the best part of 2020, which was a tough year, because it's gotten us all rowing in the right direction, providing resources where we need to. And I think equity, inclusion, and diversity issues simply have to be called out. We have to have intentional focus. We have to keep the tone up, continue to tell stories, make sure that we are listening to people And I learned from some of my ally colleagues uh, in our African-American community in CPMG the importance of read, watch, listen, and donate. So we have created um, a diversity council in our organization. We have created ally groups, including something where we're um, every month or so doing a Celebrating Women Town Hall, which, of course, is virtual. We expected 20 people to show up the first night, and 100 women showed up and all had many, many stories to tell through tears about how difficult it has been to take care of children and work full-time. And we have made it our goal, and certainly part of my strategy is to intentionally focus on making equity, inclusion, and diversity oxygen for our company. It's not going to be a department. It's going to permeate through everything. Thank you, Dr. Ferguson. And Dr. Bailey, your thoughts? I agree with Dr. Ferguson that we have to be very intentional about diversity and inclusion. I was just thinking, you know, one trend I'm real active on social media. I think that's one of my AMA responsibilities, but it's, it's a great way to communicate and get your finger on the pulse of what's going on in the world is the calling out mantles, panels and programs that are all men. And it's so interesting now to me, even as a woman, how I many times just kind of just blindly accepted that, you know, only men were qualified to give this certain program at this meeting or or just happened that way. And when you're intentional about making sure that women and people of color are are represented, the quality actually improves. I think everything we do is better when there are diverse opinions and uh, looking at lots of angles and different ways to do things. One way we have dealt with this in the AMA, of course, this is a volunteer organization. We needed to find entry points for folks who wanted to be involved in the AMA, were interested in health policy, but really didn't have a chance to be the delegate from their state or their specialty society. And so we've seen over the past 20 years the growth of sections and anybody can be active in a section. So we have a women physician section. 
We have a minority affairs section, an international medical graduate section, all sorts of ways for, for people to become involved. And then those sections all work with each other and, and work in our House of Delegates and have the privileges to introduce um, resolutions and help make policy. Oh, and that has been incredibly successful, but it was very intentional. But just then from the outside looking in, knowing that those sections are there, you know, helps send the message that your participation is valued and we're going to take advantage of your talents. Great words of wisdom and also important structure, you know, to have in place so that there are avenues and vehicles for folks to volunteer to step up. You are both trailblazers in your field and role models to young physicians. How do you work to inspire other female leaders to follow your example? And what advice might you offer to those young doctors and medical students who are just starting out on their paths? Dr. Ferguson, why don't we start with you? Well, I want to start by thanking Susan for teaching me the word mantle, which I plan to use uh, frequently. <laughs> um, I'm remembering about 10 years ago, I was at a literally a conference and they had a section on women in medicine and the entire panel was men. And a young, quiet a woman in the back of the room asked the first question and she asked why there were no women on the panel. So that I just remembered that. So thank you for that, Susan. What I've learned over the past few years is that we really have to make an effort to reach out to women and mentor them and say, you could be in this seat. In fact, I will frequently start conversations with medium-sized groups of, of individuals saying, any one of you could be the executive medical director. And I think before I got into this role, most people didn't think that was possible. I have a daughter who is also a pediatrician. She's about eight years into her career. And uh, she is much like a lot of kids her age not going to work at a single place probably for 30 years. People are just not doing that anymore. And so not only do we have to figure out how to influence and mentor women, but we have to do so with women who are really in different generations. And so people who are more mid-career, it's a matter of making room for them to understand that they make a difference and for women who are more in the millennial age group, it's for recognizing that although they may not stay for a long time, that what they are doing is going to benefit them in their future and they should use every experience. So I am always surprised if someone tells me I inspire them because I am so inspired by all people around me. But the only thing I can think of is just staying, you know, humble and steady and honest and all of that equals strong. And that should be uh, what a lot of people want to aspire to. Thank you, Dr. Ferguson. And, and Dr. Bailey, what would your advice be to those starting out on their career path? You know, I tell um, students and young physicians to uh, decide for yourself what you really, really want. 
Nobody can make that decision for you. You really have to decide it for yourself and then just make a plan and go do it. You know, I find that just telling my story inspires, you know, I don't think of myself as being inspirational, but, you know, when I look back and I'm the sixth female president of the AMA and the third in a row, but it also happens that the chairs of all of our major councils this year at the AMA are women. And that's that's a wonderful confluence of uh, the stars lining up, I guess, uh, although we never get to see each other because everything's been virtual. But, you know, I encourage people to to be intentional, to have a plan. Yeah, you may have to change it, but that's okay. Amazing insights. I am just so inspired by both of you, and I'm so appreciative of the time we've had together. Thank you, Dr. Bailey, and thank you, Dr. Ferguson, for joining me today. You're both such wonderful leaders, and you set a great example for current and the next generation of physicians. I want to thank everyone for listening today. We'll see you next time. That's our show for today. My thanks to our guest and to you for listening. Be sure to catch up with other episodes of our podcast by visiting Permanente.org or by subscribing on iTunes or SoundCloud. We'll see you next time. The opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the speakers and are not necessarily the views of Kaiser Permanente, the Permanente Medical Groups, or the Permanente Federation.